Welcome to Crafting Solutions to Conflict, a podcast exploring how to deal effectively with conflict, actual and potential, good and bad. Engaging guests discuss a range of insights, and I cover tips and topics based on my 35-year fascination with conflict and my experience helping people with it. I'm your host, Jane Bettle, and my goal is to share a perspective on conflict that is both practical and positive. My guest today is Howard Ross. We discuss how our unconscious bias shapes our perspective, an especially timely topic in our turbulent world. Hello, Howard. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Thanks so much, Jane. It's really good to be with you. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation, and I will mention that we are recording just a few days after, oh, it almost sounds quaint, what we once called Election Day, and it seems like election season in the U.S. this time (laughs) around. (laughs) Before we get into a conversation about recent events and what's going on in our world right now, I would ask you to tell us a bit about what has brought you to where you are today professionally. Sure. Thanks so much, Jane. I appreciate it. You know, there are really two streams, I think, in my professional and personal journey, and they're they're really inseparable. One is that I got involved in doing social justice work when I was very young, and that came really out of my personal family background. My family is Jewish, and, and our ancestors come from Eastern Europe, and we lost enormous numbers of people during the Holocaust. We know, for example, that 43 members of our family were killed in two days on August 2nd and 3rd, 1942, when the Nazis Mm. obliterated virtually the entire community that my grandfather grew up in the Western Ukraine and all of his relatives were killed. Mm. And there were others as well. But the point is, so we grew up in the shadow of that. I was born in January, 1951. So it was just a few years before. Yes, And the information was still coming out. And so social justice became a real big theme in my family. And so I started getting involved in civil rights work when I was a teenager and eventually spent time working with the Farm Workers Union, any war movement and the like. And it's just always been a part of my life. And then the other piece came from a completely different track. And that was that my first job out of college was as a teacher and then eventually as a school administrator. And in running my school and tripling it in size in a year, I found out that nothing that I knew about managing people worked anymore. So I began to study organizational change and leadership. And in the process of that, human consciousness and how we make decisions as human beings and what drives us as human beings. And so the two came together after I left teaching and eventually uh, went into consulting. And the two came together as I found myself doing organizational consulting around diversity and inclusion issues. And then the last piece came in, I I would say, in the mid-90s when some of the research from the latest wave of academic research around unconscious bias Mm. started to come out. And I was really fascinated with how that reflected on some of the things I had been seeing, which was some really good, decent people who had ideas that seemed inconsistent with their values, particularly ideas around race and gender and things like that. And so it's really the the stew, if you will, of all of that stuff that's (laughs) resulted in my insights and, and awarenesses. Well, it sounds particularly interesting to me that there is a whole stew. It's the practical experience in your work. It's the personal experience of your family and the research that rang true to you. 
Yes, absolutely. And I'm fascinated with research. I'm also a storyteller by my nature. So narrative and research kind of interweave. And of course, I've also had the experience of working now and with hundreds of thousands of people over 35 years in 47 states and 50 countries. And so there's a whole lot of mix here. I think you live long enough. And if you're lucky, you get a lot of experience to ground your points of view. And that sounds like a very modest way to phrase that degree of experience. Thank you. Listeners, I will tell you that originally I came in contact with Howard within the context of his book. 10 years ago, was it issued, Howard, originally? Uh, 14, 2014. 14. Oh, my. Okay. Mm-hmm. It just feels like 10 years, Jane. The last <laughs> six years just feels like 10 years. Well, yes, years. there's that. Uh, <laughs> I will actually hold it in front of me so I get this subtitle right, and that will illustrate why this book would be of great interest to me and the topics that I find interesting. It is called Everyday Bias, Identifying and Navigating Unconscious Judgments in Our Daily Lives. So as I say, originally, we were just going to chat about that. And then we realized the timing was going to be interesting, that we had scheduled our conversation for this moment in time. And when we scheduled it, we did not know exactly what life would look like right now. And I suppose it's safe to say that we know what life looks like at this very moment, but we don't know a great deal about what it will look like soon and then farther out. So we thought we might have a broader conversation particularly, Howard, because you have this breadth of experience and interest in the way all of us interact and the way our biases can lead us to places that, as you phrased it, don't align with our values. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're seeing that right in front of us. Let me ask you the broadest of all possible questions. What do you make of all of this? Well, I think it's interesting because we see the totality almost of human experience. On one hand, it was totally predictable. Um, When we look at the way our politics has polarized over the last 30 to 40 years, but especially over the last decade, it was almost inevitable that whatever result was going to come from this election would be challenged by whoever ended up losing. I think there certainly are many, many people I know who opposed President Trump, who were already prepared to claim the election was stolen if he won because of voter suppression and and other things. And clearly, we're seeing that happening now among his supporters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the sad thing is, of course, all of this gets divorced from any kind of fact. I'm not saying that it didn't happen. I'm just saying that the reaction is not based on any fact. It's just based on those initial assumptions, as it undoubtedly would have been had the result come in the other direction. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a great window into what's going on in our society right now, which is that we gather data to support our point of view, rather than gathering data and then forming a point of view based on the data that we see. Yes. And I imagine you're going to tell us that that relates to our unconscious bias. Yeah, exactly. We really can understand this better if we look at the structure of how we form decisions in our lives and that we realize now more in the last probably 20, 30 years than we ever had before that we're much more rationalizing as human beings than we are rational. Mm-hmm. We like to think that we're rational. We like to think that we gather data and then and inform our points of view. But we now know because we can look at how the brain works using functional magnetic resonating imagery, among other technologies, that we can see that the emotional centers of the brain fire off first. And when we experience something that makes us feel good or supports our point of view or makes us feel right or justifies us in any way, we gravitate towards that. We're more open to the evidence that supports that. Whereas when we see evidence contrary to that, 
we tend to resist it. I think it was John Kenneth Galbraith, the great economist who once said that most human beings give a strongly held point of view and evidence to the contrary, will quickly go about refuting the evidence. Yeah. And so the same piece of data that we see can be interpreted completely differently because the people who are interpreting it are using it to prove a point rather than really evaluating that data. And this happens whether it's a police officer confronting, for example, an unarmed African-American man because, you know, in his, in the police officer's psyche, and I want to be really clear, I'm not demonizing police officers. I've worked with thousands of them. I have enormous respect for what it takes to do that job. I'm talking about the cases that we see, of course, publicized. When this person fits the stereotype, fits the image of these stereotypes that we've all been exposed to of the terrifying, the frightening black man, the the black man who's quote more of a quote animal, you know, all of these stereotypes show up in that interaction with the police officer and the police officer actually experiences a greater sense of threat. And so they respond from that threat response in a tragic way. Of course, the same thing can happen in a positive way when somebody encounters somebody who they have positive responses to. And in fact, right. and I, I'll never forget it in one of my interactions with federal drug enforcement agency people who I was training, they told me stories about how they somebody who was the person they were going after in one particular case, because they were looking for somebody who had been described as Latino. And this woman who was the actual person who was a Latina walked right past because they assumed it was a man because that was their stereotype of (laughs) drug dealers. And so if this can happen in, in lots and lots of different ways. Yeah. I found many pieces interesting, but one is how quickly our brains go to the emotion first and then finding ways to use what we think is rational to back up the emotion. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, it's virtually instantaneous. I mean, but 0.2 milliseconds, you know. So let's say I, you know, just to give an example that's outside of these controversial aspects of politics and the like. Let's say that you and I meet for the first time, Jane, and you're wearing a red sweater. And uh, we've, never, we've never met. And I meet you and I have this feeling, something about this woman I'm not comfortable with, let's say, you know. Okay. Now, that could be something as simple as, or as benign, we might say, as that what's happened in my brain is I flash back 50 years to when I was in middle school and we used to have sock hops. You remember sock hops? You know, we used to dance on the gym floor in our socks. And in those days, of course, it was always the boy's job to ask the girls to dance. And so let's say, and I'm just making this up, but let's say I walked across the gym floor to ask that girl, Mary, who I had a crush on to dance. And not only did she say no, but she laughed at me. And the whole then I have to turn and do the walk of shame all the way back. And the whole time I'm saying to myself, I will never do that again. Well, Mary was wearing a red sweater too. And here 50 years later in the hippocampus in the memory center of my brain, red sweater and rejection are still linked together because that's the way my brain stored that information. So here 50 years later, I meet you in a completely different context, completely different person, but that red sweater triggers that immediate response. Be careful. Right. And and that's the way, in fact, the brain stores and uses information. So fast. And the other thing that I think is interesting, or one of the many things, is the idea that we like to believe that we're being rational, even when we're rationalizing. Yeah. And that's, of course, one of the most dangerous aspects of it, because if we knew that we were rationalizing, if we knew that we were making stuff up and making conjecture or hypotheses based on you know, limited information, then we would hold the information with a bit of a question mark. Most of us would be a little bit you know, hesitant to be definitive. Um, I like to say we want to change those exclamation points into question marks. But because we worship at the altar of rationality, especially in Western society, and that goes 2,500 years ago back to Plato, mm-hmm. 
that because we think that good people, smart people, authoritative people are rational, which is the great myth, of course, as I said earlier, um, we hold on to this and defend these points of view with our lives, even when we're giving evidence that's directly contrary to our point of view, as we're seeing played out in front of us right now with this whole the election issue is concerned. You know, we have person after person after person, uh, election commissioners and people who are actually part of the vote tallying and people who are observing the vote tallying, person after person after person that has made it clear that there's no evidence at all of anything going weird with this voting right. in, a, in any mass way. That doesn't mean you're going to find uh, a person here who cheated or a person there who did something or whatever, but there's virtually nobody out there with any credibility in terms of their authority who's saying that this happened, and yet it hasn't stopped even for a moment people continuing to forward this narrative. Right. It is fascinating. Troubling, of course, but also fascinating the way our brains work and how committed we become to this this narrative, this belief that we have. Because it does exist for us as if it's real. And as I said before, once we've made that determination and we tack on our righteousness, particularly around Issues that (laughs) we feel very strongly about, like the political climate, the election and the like. Then, as uh, somebody said to me one time, we'd rather be right than be happy. (laughs) Yes, I could see that. Well, (laughs) Howard, if you put your consulting hat on and Mm -hmm. try to offer advice and constructive ideas to folks who are so committed to a narrative that is not standing up to evidence, what would you be able to suggest to them? I think it starts with our willingness to consider that things may not be the way we think they are. And, you know, nothing nothing else happens until we really take a look at that. And that comes from looking at reality in front of us, looking at all the times that we know people have been misjudged, all the times that facts have been misjudged. You know, one of the real challenges that we have right now in our society around this chain is that, is that we no longer have a centralized source of truth. Mm-hmm. If you watch Fox News and I watch MSNBC, we get two completely different um, views of reality, Absolutely. just as an example. Yeah. And so, whereas if we go back, let's say to Watergate, because I'm old enough to remember Watergate, when the New York Times and the Washington Post reported findings, everybody basically accepted that that was reality. Now, they may not have liked that reality. They may have had different opinions how to deal with that reality. But there wasn't a lot of questioning that reality. The data was right there for us to look at. Now, of course, some people look at those very same two institutions that I was talking about. And before they even know what they're saying, because it's coming from those institutions, they discount it. And the same is true for many people on the left around Fox News. And so as a result of that, we don't have that standard of truth. And that makes it very, very difficult for us to come to any resolution with this, because I'll sit there and tell you, well, I heard this and I'll show you my data. And you say, I heard that and show you my data. And it exists as this notion of, as we've all sort of sadly laughed about this notion of alternative facts in our culture, as opposed to what is the truth here? What actually happened in those vote counting centers in the case of the election? What actually happened in this interaction between a police officer and a, somebody who ended up being killed by them? Right. And so moving away from the election for a minute to the police officers, so we see that there are cases now where police officers are legitimately saying it doesn't matter whether my life was actually being threatened or somebody else's like, life was being threatened. And then if I did everything by the book and still had to shoot this person to protect people's lives, it doesn't matter because there are going to be some people out there who are going to claim I'm racist, whatever I did. And that's 
undoubtedly true. And there, at the same time, there are also people who look at even something as blatant as a George Floyd killing and come up with all kinds of nonsense about, well, he was high or he mm-hmm. did this, none of which has anything to do with what we saw happen right in front of our faces right. in that particular case. And it's just both, again, examples of what I'm talking about, which is this need to justify and hold on to our point of view, regardless of the truth. It's daunting, unquestionably. How do we engage in a way forward where we would allow ourselves to admit that we're wrong, that we're biased, and have an ability to engage with other people in a way that they could admit that too without some sort of gloating on my part or some sort of additional judgment about, see, I finally got you to admit that you were wrong. How do we deal with this kind of bias and I'm going to say knee-jerk reaction sometimes in a way that will help us do better? I think, you know, it starts, first of all, when we recognize that we are not our points of view Mm -hmm. and we start to to shift a realization from you're one of those kind of people to let me listen to what you're saying and see if I either agree or disagree with it. Now, I may disagree with it, but I can disagree with people who I care about. I mean, most everybody I know has somebody in their family, somebody in their life who's important to them, who they have certain disagreements about that they might they might argue about them, but they don't turn it into hating that person or or dismissing that person or devaluing that person. But right. unfortunately, in, in the case of politics, and sadly, increasingly in the case of race and diversity in general, which has been put so deeply in our political structures, we discount each other's humanity. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's, I think, the real challenge. And one way that I found that was really helpful for me, and other people may or may not be willing to do this, is... You know, as somebody who voted against President Trump, I went out and interviewed for my last book, Our Search for Belonging, I interviewed over 100 people who did vote for President Trump. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed them not to find out how crazy they were or how mean or evil they were, but what it was about him that spoke to them. And what I found was that, first of all, a lot of really good people. Um, that they didn't all fit the stereotypes that I had seen on TV. Yes. But that most of them, actually a majority of them, said that they voted more against Secretary Clinton than they did for President Trump. And I think uh-huh. what we're finding in the in the initial studies from this time is that it may be very similar, that many right. of Biden's voters were more against President Trump than they were for Biden. And that they were people who had justification inside of their value system for their point of view. And that Coda there inside of their value system is the important thing for people to keep in mind that if, for example, abortion was critically important to somebody, that might have been a factor. If gun rights were critically important to somebody, that might be a factor. One person who I've known since she was a young person, since she was she was a teenager and who now has three children, who homeschools her children and felt like in that in that particular case that Secretary Clinton wasn't a supportive of homeschooling. You know, so uh, yeah. so people had had their points of view. And what we do is we tend to judge people based on our prioritization of our values. But of course we each make our decisions based not on somebody else's prioritization of our values, but on our own. And I think one thing that you hit upon is the idea just this is a person who, as opposed to this monolithic, this crowd of people who are all alike in lockstep, viewing everything about this candidate the same way, but that there are so many different priorities and maybe nothing's perfect. And the fact that someone chose one candidate over another doesn't necessarily mean it was a 95-5 choice. It might have been a 51-49, boy, this is hard for me 
choice. Yes, and I think there's no question about it when we look at both of these elections. There were an awful lot of people who made these decisions without being thrilled about the person they voted for, in some cases held their nose and voted for somebody because that was the particular choice that they had to make. There's a wonderful quote from James Baldwin, and I I don't remember it word for word, but but he said something to the effect of, we could disagree and still love each other unless your disagreement is rooted in my oppression and the the dial of my humanity and my right to exist. And I think that that this is where it becomes challenging. I'm not suggesting, and people have sometimes said, are you saying it's just, it's all right? No, I'm not saying that at all. You know, we can have strong points of view. We can fight for our points of view. We can debate our points of view. But it's important that we remember that they are points of view. And as you said a few minutes ago, it doesn't define the whole human, that we have humanity that, first, and then we have points exactly of view. Right. On so that's many exactly different right. things, we have points of view. And, and people can have different points of view regarding what flavor ice cream they prefer. But that doesn't mean the fact that they're different, that mine is right and someone else's is necessarily wrong. And in fact, in, our, in, in the way we've been so polarized, we've lost the reality that overwhelmingly more times than not, Jane, the answer is somewhere in the middle. Yes. Yeah. That, But we've moved into this binary world where you're either all this way or all that way. And there's not a lot of space inside of that conversation for nuance because in many people, look, I can't, I can't even count the number of people who I would say support my general politics, which generally tends to be towards the left. You know, that's that's where I am politically in terms of my points of view. But I can't tell you how many people who shared those perspectives with me who thought I was crazy for talking to all these Trump voters, who said, I can't believe you wasted time talking to all of these. Oh, and they boy. would use some, some yeah. you know, derogatory comment to do yeah. that, you know? And, and similarly, how many people who have discounted any findings because they knew what my politics were. So, I mean, yeah. it's just our go-to at this point. It's so reflexive and knee-jerk yeah. at this point yeah. that we're not even thinking really anymore. Well, we're going to try to be optimistic that maybe we have reached a kind of a turning point in some ways. One thing that I think is remarkably positive is so many people engaged in voting. Yes. We're kind of low on apathy at the moment, and that's a grand thing. We can learn mm-hmm. how to disagree better, but at least people were engaged in voting. And I'm sure we haven't seen the final numbers yet, and we will eventually, but that part's exciting, I think, that people yeah, well, care. Yeah, it looks like it's going to be up around 150 million people, more than I've ever voted before. And that's an extraordinary thing. And, and ultimately, any semblance of democracy we have will depend on people's engagement. In. And I think uh, one thing that may come out of this, it was necessity being the mother of invention. We had to find ways this time because of COVID and keeping people safe and people's concerns about that. But you know, this notion that there's more than one way to vote and there's more yes. than one way to get people's votes in is an important one because we know that it's a lot easier for somebody whose job is on a salary where they can run out for a couple hours to vote and it's no big deal versus somebody whose professional responsibility is an hourly one and means if I have to take two hours and go stand in the line for another hour or something like that, I've lost money that I yes. need to pay for my food this week. Yes. And so when we begin to find alternative ways to do that, or so older people don't have to worry about getting out and standing in line, and the easier we make voting and the safer we make voting, the better it will be ultimately for our democracy. That's a wonderfully optimistic place for us to pause and allow me to say, would you tell listeners where they could reach you and learn more about you and about your three books? 
Sure. The books, the first one is Reinventing Diversity. The second one, as you said, is Everyday Bias, so that it just came out in a second edition. And the third one is Our Search for Belonging. And all of those are available at major booksellers online, and they're available in, in all the typical forms in electronic version and, and audio version and the like. I can be reached at either howardjross.com or udarta, U-D-A-R-T-A.com. Those are my two websites. And I'm also very active on LinkedIn. So people can catch me on LinkedIn. I've been very active on Facebook, but I think I'm going to take a little bit of break from social media um, <laughs> after after this election stuff settles down. We would probably do well if a lot of us would take a break from social media for a bit. A mental health break is a good thing. I think that's yes. a great idea. Thank you, Howard, for jumping to the fray with me to talk about what's going on right now, because it is fascinating and it will be fascinating to many for a long, long time. And of course, I will put in the show notes for today's episode, that information about where to reach Howard and how to find out more about Howard's books. And again, I thank you. Jane, thank you. It's so good to be with you again. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the Crafting Solutions to Conflict podcast, please share it leave a rating or review. Subscribe through one of the major apps. For anyone new to podcasts, here's something you may not know. Subscribing is free. You can also find the show at CraftingSolutionsToConflict.com. Comments or ideas? Let me know. Until next time, I'm Jane Bettle.